Hello and thank you for joining us. You're listening to Words of Welcome, the teaching ministry of Welcome Baptist Church, Heathfield. The title Andy gave me for this morning was Death Day is Better Than Birthday. I have to say, this has been one of the hardest messages I've had to prepare. Let me read you the verses that we will be focusing on. It's Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 and 2, and it reads like this. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Reading the first part of verse 1, a good name is better than fine perfume, no one would have guessed what the next part would have been. The day of death is better than the day of birth. And then he goes on to say that we should take heart that our destiny is death. Perhaps you think this is not an encouraging subject for a Sunday morning sermon, or indeed a sermon at any time other than at funerals. But it's what I've been given, so here we go. So, a question, first of all, for you. In light of what Paul wrote to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that all God's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, we might be tempted to ask, why would God's people need a book like this? Ecclesiastes, a book that seems to take a long, hard look at the world, but from the view of a humanist or a secularist, someone who lives under the sun. We might think that it would be good material for someone who isn't a Christian to consider, but for the people of God? Could it be, could it be, even in a small part, and it's a complex book, and the more commentaries I read, read, the more confused I got, a complex book, but could it be even in a part that the writer wants to stiffen the resolve of the followers of God who simply find the going just too hard? So here's another question. Have you ever thought about giving up on God? Has the Christian life for you ever got so difficult or the ways of God so unfathomable that you felt it would be simpler to walk away? You thought perhaps it would be so much easier to return to the way of life you had before God took charge when you felt free to make your own decisions without reference to him. If you have ever thought like that, you weren't the first and you won't be the last. At the end of John's Gospel, we read that after the confusion and heartbreak and up and down of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Peter said, I've had enough. I'm going fishing. It's what he knew he could do. And Jesus had to draw him back. He'd been on such an emotional roller coaster and could understand so little that he just felt he had to walk away. Adam and Eve, 
in the Garden of Eden, the perfection of the Garden of Eden, scarcely had been it completed before they'd had enough of God telling them what to do. And they made their own decisions catastrophically for themselves and for the world. What about the Hebrews at the time of Exodus? God miraculously saves them and delivers them from Egypt and from slavery. And they're simply weeks into the journey to the promised land before they're grumbling about the lack of food and wishing themselves back in Egypt as slaves because then at least they wouldn't worry about food. Even the godly prophet Elijah had his moment of despair. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And sadly, the story of the Old Testament is one in which the Israelites repeatedly turn away from God, give up on God. The book of Judges, near the beginning, we read this, they forsook the Lord. They've only just got into the promised land. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him. And the very last verse of that same book reads like this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit without reference to God, we could add. And that pattern of behavior, with a few exceptions, continued throughout the time of the kings right up to the time of the exile in Babylon. One thing at least is clear. It is not easy to be a follower of God. So the preacher of Ecclesiastes is on a journey to find meaning within the limitations of human existence. His search is all about finding God, but not in some big particular historical event, but in the mundane and unremarkable details of ordinary day-to-day life. What he offers us is the joys and the sorrows of the everyday, the glory in the ordinary. And when all has been heard... He will draw his thoughts to a conclusion by saying this in chapter 12. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of every human being. And those of us with the benefit of New Testament hindsight will applaud him. The God of whom he speaks is a God who loved the world so much that he gave his son, not to condemn us, but to rescue us to save us, to bring us back to himself, the one who has created us and the one who has loved us from the beginning. But while he makes his journey of exploration, he reminds us that for all its assurance and promise, great is the mystery of faith. Life is not simply a journey of uplifting experiences, a pilgrimage of unmitigated delight, It's also about confronting despair, disillusionment and death face to face. Of confronting the bewilderingly complex and convoluted world in which people live and move and have our being. Oh yes, life has joy and peace in Christ, but it also has turmoil. This is the world in which we live and the preacher wants us to look at it. He wants us to open our eyes and examine this life. 
not merely pass through it in a holy bubble. If we do open our lives, if we do confront the complexities and contradictions of life as it really is, the outcome will be a heightened awareness of the vanity of life. Life is filled with both bitter disappointment and unexpected delight of profound discovery and equally profound disillusionment. After all, don't we often find ourselves moving between cynicism and acceptance, worldliness and spirituality, anxiety and serenity? So, how will this book help any of God's people who might be wrestling with the idea of giving up on God? The preacher says that we, the living, should take to heart the fact that death is the destiny of every one of us. How might that help? A poet had the same thought and wrote this little ditty. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she. But oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. What can the sorrowful experience of death teach us that will do us good? Well, it can teach us that life is fragile and unpredictable. In our youth, we may have imagined we were pretty much invincible, but growing up shows us that nothing could be further from the truth. In our later years, we are regularly faced with fragility and have to deal with all that comes our way, including that which is unbidden and unwelcome. Because ultimately, death shows us that we are not in charge. This writer says in chapter 8, no one has the power over their time of their death. And if we are not in charge of that one inescapable reality, then we are not ultimately in charge of anything, no matter what it might look like. And since death can and does happen to anyone, anywhere, at any time, we have to confess that God's ways are beyond our understanding. In this meaningless life of mine, this writer says in chapter 7, I have seen both of this, both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Why? What sense does that make when we think of a God of justice and righteousness? That writer goes on to say this, consider what God has done, who can straighten out what he has made crooked. So all we're left with is a thought that we should make the most of every day. Since we only have one life, we should live it. Now you're all thinking this is a counsel of despair. This is a bleak, fatalistic view of life. And you're probably right. But if we step back one moment, one commentator suggests that this writer was writing to the people who had just come back from the exile, who'd gone into exile because they had given up on God, and God had brought them back. But that knowing the prevailing circumstances of life for the newly released exiles, 
that they were taking up their lives again in the promised land, but that nothing was as they remembered it. No temple, no houses, ruined fields. Quoting him, he says this, the audience he is writing to live under the oppression of unremitting toil, are stricken with anxiety over the prospect of losing their possessions, are frustrated by the loss of justice in the land, and cower in fear before royalty. Such is Koheleth's world, vain as it is. Life for them is really tough. It's full of all the difficulties and awkwardnesses. And there will be a danger, this man knows, given their history, of them just returning to their ways again, of giving up on God. So how would these people, his first readers, have received his words? What would they have made of his conclusion that they should fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of every human being? What would they have thought when they read, remember your creator in the days of your youth? Because these are a people who have a long history with God. These aren't people for whom God is a new idea. These are people who have hundreds of years of history. They know the biblical story of creation. They should know God's commandments. And they should certainly know something of the love and grace he has poured upon their ancestors right up and to them in the present day. So death may indeed teach them that life is fragile and unpredictable. But that is simply the plain and obvious truth. You don't need to be a prophet to speak that. But remembering their creator would be to acknowledge that life might be fragile, but it was a gift, a fragile gift from a loving God made in God's image and God's likeness meant that they were not the result of meaningless chance leading to meaningless lives. In the past, he had delivered them from their slavery and loved them with an everlasting love. Through the prophets, he had said to them, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Life might be fragile. It might be unpredictable, but they were safe in his hands. The fact of death underlined repeatedly that they were not in charge, but that, my friends, has always been the case. Any thought that they or we have ever been masters of our own destiny is an illusion. The psalmist wrote this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live it. It is God's, not ours. We are not in control. And God is to be trusted above all others. As Moses Moses had discovered, as God revealed himself to him, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So he's telling these people, that you may feel you're not in charge. You may feel still under the heel of one 
nation after another, but they are not in charge either. God is and always has been. Life may feel fragile and unpredictable, but you're in the hands of God. The randomness of death may have emphasized that God's ways are beyond their understanding, but they knew that anyway because God had told them that anyway. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. If ever you think you'll work out everything to do with the ways of God, think again. That would be to minimize the God you believe in. The God we believe in is an infinite God, a magnificent God, a great God. We have to let him be God. Trusting God has always meant trusting him even when his will and ways make no sense to us whatsoever in the lives we lead. But knowing him is to trust in his utter faithfulness and leaving the decisions to him. This thought came to me. If I were to do something for my wife, and I've been married a long time now, if I do something for my wife only because I know that the response she will make is one I will like, I'm really doing something for her so that I will get something from it. That is not loving my wife. That is manipulating my wife. That is using my wife. So if I do something for God, knowing that he will do something for me, I'm in danger of manipulating God, not trusting God. Trusting him means giving him the freedom to do in my life whatever he wants, whenever he wants to do it. And death reminds us all that today is the only day we have. So we should make the most of every day. Not in some fatalistic way, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. No. It is to recognise that because we remember our creator, the one who came to us, lived among us, died for us, rose again, that everything we do matters. Peter wrote this. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. I would think there are many Christians who at one severely dark moment or another, have honestly thought, I just want to give up. It is just too hard. At the end of John 6, after listening to Jesus' teaching, we read this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Concerned, Jesus looked at the twelve and asked, You do not want to leave too, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. 
Peter suddenly realised there was nowhere else to go. Nothing could offer what Jesus offered. So despite the hardness of the way, those disciples chose to stick with Jesus and not give up. They chose life with Jesus. And so can we. After all, life without Jesus makes no sense. So maybe the preacher is saying, death has something to teach us. It teaches us, if nothing else, that we are utterly dependent upon God. We dare not turn from him. It will be to walk into the darkness out of the light. It would be to choose death, not life. Paul, someone who fully understood the hardships as well as the joys of following Jesus, once wrote this. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He would say to his friends, what is true about every Christian, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. So going back to Paul, I can say this to you, my friends. No matter how hard your life is at the moment. And I'm speaking for myself. I don't know about any of you, but the catalogue of situations in my family, my wider family, I come from a large family, just goes on and on of hard situations. The list just goes on and on. No matter how hard it is for you, how difficult it is, how, how little you understand of the purposes of God, Don't turn your back on him. Don't turn your back on him. Choose life. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour is not in vain. Let me pray. Father, the situations different ones of us face are too many to mention, but each one is deep and profound and affects us widely. And Father, in your mercy, you came to us when we were still sinners and saved us. From the depths of that despair, you changed our lives from death to life, out of the darkness into the light. Lord, I don't know if anyone's struggling here today, but for any who might, Lord, I just pray, will you shine light on them? Will you show them yourself? Will you remind them, Lord, that there is nothing outside Christ that we could possibly want and everything in Christ that we need? Lord, would you stiffen our resolve and help us to hold on to you the one who holds us in his hand. That in our lives, good, bad or indifferent, you may be glorified and we may break through to those wonderful uplifting days when things seem to work together for good. Thank you, Lord, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And at this moment in time, the fullness of heaven's riches is available to every one of us 
as we turn to you. Thank you, Father. Amen. Thank you for listening to Words of Welcome. For new episodes and more, please visit welcomebaptistchurch.uk.